0: talking a little bit about how this process of uncovering a spiritual path to enlighten peace and freedom takes on a very very interesting series of shapes Uh, and I was challenged uh, by this woman who was doing this interview uh, before, they do this thing called a pre-interview, you know, where they, they tell you the questions they're going to ask you, basically. Except I told her I didn't want her to tell me the questions she was going to ask. Because um, then it would be more spontaneous. I guess I was feeling cocky or something, I don't know. But uh, it actually worked out fairly well. But where, where she stumped me was where she asked me, what is an acronym for what you do? What is the essence of your teaching? And of course, I at that moment just kind of said, "I have no idea," and um, I felt really stumped and kind of started to work with it, and came up with these quite silly ones. My wife's favorite was a gaga, and I don't, I don't remember what a gaga stood for, but uh, uh, I, I figured while that was funny, I, and I mean, how could you forget a gaga? You know, but then. Here I've done it. Um, we came up with passage. And we have been working with presence, accountability, surrender, stillness, which is what we're going to be covering tonight. And then after stillness, it's uh, absolute knowing. And then generosity. And we follow that up by engagement. But stillness is core to this whole thing because without stillness, nothing, uh, nothing opens up. We stay closed. We stay bound to habitual tendencies. We stay locked in uh, behaviors that will prevent awakening from showing up. So stillness, while it's a very obvious way of talking about meditation, and indeed that's core to to what this is, it's also something that uh, is at the foundation of every single aspect of our being, whether we're sitting still formally or informally, just recognizing the stillness that can occur as we're uh, you know, paying paying our check at uh, a restaurant. Brushing our teeth. Dealing with crying children who won't shut up. <laughs> Sorry about that. I just had to let that editorial slip out. The <laughs> can you tell I'm attached uh, to sleep? OK. Uh, But quite, quite, uh, quite seriously, um, looking at our own lives and looking at our own experience as they correspond with, or if you will, commingle with a conscious apprehension of stillness tends to show us where we are on the path in really, really interesting ways. If we can cultivate stillness consciously, in our lives. What we're able to do then is have this real interesting relationship to chaos. The chaos no longer becomes something that is threatening or something to be avoided, but something to actually appreciate, something to meet, yet something else to kind of uh, uh, deepen our experience. So what I'd like you to consider tonight is what is it that gets in the way of stillness for you? Where is your tendency towards the busy? Some of us are busier than others by, by nature. Uh, Some of us are very mercurial, not only with our minds, but also in our speech and so forth. Some people are very actually discursive in their thinking and, you know, constantly, constantly talking. Other people can hide in quietude as a way of kind of avoiding, you know, meeting their lives. So there there are extremes in, in either way that can tend to keep us out of that center space, that middle way, that place of presence. Where accountability, presence, and uh, surrender very naturally kind of show up when they're given the gas of stillness, so to speak. Stillness, in other words, is at the core of enlightenment. Without stillness, there is no such thing as awakening. There is no such thing as awakening without stillness. So our tendency to go busy or our tendency to manage our lives staying in control, in whatever capacity it is to kind of stay in control, that tends to be one of the great ways of messing up or at least hiding the path. Now, ego is going to take this last uh, couple sentences that I said most likely, and the ego will say, "You're right, Mike. Sure, yeah. So I just kind of give up, just let everything go, and then watch you know the world fly apart at the seams." Yes. Except, you'll be amazed. Life won't fly apart at the seams. What? The seams that will rip apart. Are metaphorically this old set of clothes that you've grown out of that you no longer need to wear so consciously loosening our grip on things is supported by still through stillness stillness actually supports this spacious uh, this this enhanced openness I don't know if that makes much sense, I forgive if it doesn't, but both uh, formal meditation practices that many of you have nurtured over time, every day, sitting still, as well as informal checking in with your bodies at different moments of the day. Both of these types of uh, conscious apprehensions of stillness will help us see through what it is that's in our way what it is that keeps us locked on to things. And that's scary. Because it means change is afoot. And this is where people usually break out of, of the, uh, uh, they decide to get off the path. Because change actually means embracing the non-familiar. Change means actually doing things differently. Change change means instead of always turning right or always having this particular way of doing things, it means actually examining that fully and seeing if it gets in your way of awakening. What's getting in your way? What is keeping your ego in charge? What's doing that? Explore that tenderly don't attack it. Ah, there you are. You know? That makes things really ugly, actually. That's just ego sneaking through the back door of the enlightenment process. saying, like, aha, now I'm in control now of the thing that's trying to be in control. Right? And it messes everything up. Being aware of that is key. Being aware of your small tendencies. The things that keep you small the selfish aspects of you, including aspects that the self sees as totally generous as a way of boosting itself up, those are also selfish acts. In Buddhism, we call it karmic activity. Any activity that comes from the separate self sense. Do you know anybody that's always late? Or do you know anybody that's always, like, really demanding that it be done a certain way? Or do you know this type of personality tweak is classic, non-awakening ego that wants to awaken. And it will forever stay locked in that space. It won't be able to escape. And it will stay small. And it will stay childlike and it will stay angry, and it will cry all the time in its own way. So, can we fearlessly look at these little tendencies? Honestly, with authentic eyes, with deep curiosity, not judgment, not judgment, not a haranguing, not a a, a scolding, but just, there it is. That's what's plugging up the bathtub that just wants to drain empty, that just wants to be empty. There it is. Then you get to choose. Well, you know, I'll keep this, this bathtub full about this. This is fairly comfortable. Or you can have the courage to actually clear out that blockage. Stillness supports this in every case. Shall we sit? monastery in Nepal, and the place where I was staying was outside of, uh, outside of Kathmandu, up this, this hill, and you had to go through this amazing, amazing area of uh, of poverty in order to get there, and so forth, and I remember, you know, finally getting there, and then they, they said, okay, yeah, well, actually, we do have a room. And I went to the room and the thing was, it smelled, just had this stench of mold. Just this amazing mold. And I had just gotten, I I had had dysentery and I was in horrible shape. But, you know, I was really, you know, come hell or high water, I'm going to study with masters because they they have something to give me, I thought. And um, other than dysentery. And uh, I... I remember being so taken with my experiences, my discussions with um, uh, uh, the the people there from this particular tradition. I had been, as many of you know, kind of schooled in the Zen tradition and I was going off into this Vajrayana, or Tibetan tradition, to really kind of explore this, you know, what this clearly must have something powerful to offer, and so forth. And uh, in my in my exploration, I was so taken with how they were coming at me and everybody else with, you are filthy, you are impure, and meditation is the purification that all of you need to go through. And immediately, probably no surprise to any of you with any type of Christian background, what kind of went off in my head was, you are a what? Sinner. Sinner. Very good. And so here I am kind of going, oh, great. I came a long way for this. (laughs) Uh, And it was really interesting as I started to, um, you know, sit with this this, uh, community of monks and started to recognize that they were talking about something much deeper than sin. Sin, by the way, uh, uh, it's Greek for missing the mark in archery, okay? So if you're a sinner, you aren't flying really the direction that's going to get you into the heart of God. Takes a lot of pressure off, doesn't it? As opposed to you're a sinner, you're going straight to hell, and it's going to suck there, okay? Because there is no AC (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> the purity that they were talking about or the purification of this process that they were talking about was really our ability to withstand pressure <coughs> or to bear the heat of experience. And it became just this beautiful opening because as, uh, as they, you know, would kind of talk about the, the, it, during their puja or prayers in the morning and so forth, there was this one particular chant that would kind of go through this. I mean, I read the translation, I'm like, oh, my God. But then as I started really thinking about it, yeah, meditation or a stillness practice is that. It puts us in a situation where we have to face what we've always resisted. And then we get to choose whether or not we want to make the change. And that choice, that white hot fire that surrounds that choice, is something that we get to walk through. Indeed, it's kind of a privilege to be able to consciously walk through or into this fire. What allows us to do that is actually a meditation practice. A meditation practice allows for us to, I've used this metaphor before, I quite like it a lot, it's where, where we are, in essence, clarifying butter. If you put, if you, you begin to, to put like a couple of sticks of butter into a pan, you turn up the heat, you don't want to get too hot. If you get it going too hot, stuff's going to burn, right? Instead, you turn it up so that it begins to melt, and then the stuff at the top, you can skim off, Right? What's left? Something that can withstand heat. Something that can meet the fire with itself totally and completely. And it's not doing anything. It's just there. It's present. So if we can look at purification or, if you will, freeing ourselves of sin, essentially it's just skimming off the stuff that we don't need, the stuff that will burn as we begin to intensify the heat of life we're in a really really good you know a good place stillness is the heat meditation is that flame so cultivating it becomes really important everyone to a certain extent in this room my sense is is feeling some degree of connection or disconnection in relationship to the seeking of enlightenment. Or maybe you don't want to call it enlightenment, so you're seeking peace or you're seeking depth, but we're in this place of seeking and there's some intensity behind it. The interesting thing is the way through that door is to not move is to be still. And yet every one of us has so much stuff that is predicated on avoiding stillness. We have names for it. Oh, that's lazy. Don't be a couch potato. Don't be, I mean we have ways of talking about stillness in really pejorative terms when in fact stillness is precisely what allows it all to unpack itself through this very body and this very mind that you meet the world with every single day. Stillness is the shortcut. It would be really um, tempting, and indeed a lot of people are really tempted to become schooled in a particular uh, discipline, meditative discipline. Um, I have been so impressed and am absolutely owe so much to people who have spent an entire lifetime learning about Buddhism. Learning about Vedanta Hinduism. Learning about the Kabbalah. Learning about contemplative Christianity. All this stuff. They've, they've offered so much. The trouble as I see it is that we can become really good Christians we can become really good uh, Buddhists and become really knowledgeable about all this stuff or we can become Christs and Buddhas I'm far more interested in the latter and the way that kind of happens is when stillness becomes some type of orienting core to our being this uh, guy that I um, connected with actually while I was at uh, 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 the monastery in Nepal. His name was Geshe Tashi, And he was not the head guy, but any of the people like you talk to who are, you know, kind of the, 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 senior, the senior monks that were there and everything said, oh yeah, man, this guy, he's, he's the real deal. You got to talk to him. You know, the guy that's running the show here, kind of a jerk, but this guy, he's, he's got the Dharma going through him and he uh, at one point said to a group, there was, we were having a Dharma talk and he said, uh, the whole point of meditation practice is to continually expose an internal still alertness to all that moves. That's it. And I love that little punctuation, but that's it. <laughs> it's a still alertness to all that moves. Any thought that you have is moving Can you be alert to that thought? Any emotion that you have is just a thought that begins to resonate with the body. Classic example is, have you ever felt angry or slighted by somebody? All right. Usually, it's a thought. You can watch, next time this happens, watch it. It's a thought that just goes thunk, and it hits. You can almost feel it hit in your body, and then your body begins to kind of heat up. It's fascinating. And then what's the mind do? It labels it. And it labels the person that perpetrated the attack. Ah, anger, jackass. (laughs) And it's about that fast. When we have stillness, a stillness practice that we've cultivated, we're able to watch the whole process And it's very hard to watch that process without having just the slightest giggle. There's compassion that can begin, can begin to surround not only our experience, but also the experiencer and the person who who perpetrated, if you will, becomes something not They they are seen not as somebody who is thrown an attack, but as somebody who is tweaking your unconsciousness. They become your teacher. So, as we cultivate stillness, as we kind of surrender to it, we build off the last, the last step. We, We talked about that presence, accountability, surrender and now stillness. If we kind of build on this capacity to surrender to what is, we begin to see that stillness actually is the birthplace of all things. Everything comes from stillness. And maybe a a way of turning this a, a bit is music comes from rests. It's the rest that actually allows for the music to begin to differentiate. Now it's possible to have tonal and atonal harmonies and so forth that are going on, and that can be beautiful in and of itself, but the real texture to music shows up through those rest, those periods of rest, okay? It allows for rhythm. It allows for variance, variation, and all all this beautiful stuff to kind of commingle. when we start to see our life as that expression, literally a creative and spontaneous expression, there's a certain clarity that arises that keeps us right on track, that keeps us, if you will, from sin. We are hitting bullseyes. But one of the things that this brings up and a lot of people can say okay well that sounds really good and everything but uh, you know stillness what so uh, if 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 I really get into this space of stillness what's you know why should I even get out of bed if I'm all absorbed in the now you know if I'm doing this presence thing why would I ever get out of bed if I'm feeling totally blissful and everything. Why don't I just become a spiritual couch potato? And that is your option. You have that option. Except you are actually further from awakening than all sorts of other people if you decide to just rest in that space of spiritual, spiritual couch potato-ness. And here's why. The ego is continually going to um, equate avoidance with stillness. And if you decide consciously not to go out into the world at all, why go into the world? Look very carefully at that because most likely what's happened is a series of avoidance patterns have crept in. Ego is, like I said before, come in through the back door and turned avoidance patterns into what it thinks stillness is. This might sound kind of confusing, but it's the way that the ego can then justify not awakening. Just like adhering to certain personality characteristics that we might have, or certain opinions that we might have, or certain convictions. When we adhere to them, we cling to them, what do we do? We destroy their ability to edify. We destroy their ability to actually, we destroy awakening's ability, or the infinite's ability to express itself through us. So stillness, just for the record, does not move toward, nor does it move away from anything. It is equally present for all things, remaining still, remaining itself, even in the face of great activity. Even as stuff is going wacko, stillness is what? The source of all that wackoness. And if we're consciously sourcing ourselves from that source, okay, if we're consciously letting that stillness come through us, even when we are in great activity, there is peace. Or put maybe a way that's more, uh, more powerful, even in the face of great, perhaps even contentious activity, there's no war. And that's how mountains are moved. So stillness, I, I don't, I mean, I guess there's a lot you can say about it and so forth. I don't know what you can write about it scientifically. But it's, uh, as we see it, as we begin to see it as the source of all things, um, we start to see that it's Prior to all things. I don't know how, again, I, this gets, I'm not trying to get metaphysical, but if you just kind of unpack it, it's, it's quite amazing. And some of you may have even experienced something like this. It's where you start recognizing that, that stillness as the source of all things is before all things. It is before or prior to any thought. A thought will bubble up out of it, so to speak. Does this make sense? Okay. Similarly, A feeling will bubble up out of stillness. If you've ever been meditating and you're watching your experience and you see, okay, there's a thought or there's a memory, there's a plan. There's some pain, discomfort. Oh, that's judgment. You know, you've got all this going on and then suddenly there's just an opening. That's stillness, okay? All things come from that wide open empty field. That empty field then is prior to all those things. If it is prior to those things, here's where it gets really fun. If it is prior to thought, it cannot be bound by thought. If it is prior to feeling, it cannot be bound by feeling. If it is prior indeed to time, if it can observe time, if stillness can actually look at the movement of time and recognize it, so there's time, there's future. Or there's past. It's eternal. This is what we're referring to when we refer to eternal life. It's the eternal life, if you will, that is prior to everything that is born, everything that is made, and everything that is created. Orienting ourselves consciously from that place of stillness allows for us to see kind of this unfold. We start recognizing to get Christian on you, God's gift is everywhere. From the Buddhist perspective, we start seeing that from emptiness, there is form. And form is nothing other than emptiness. And we are in that, as that, dancing with that, always. You can't escape it. And this is what meditation ends up showing us. Usually with a little goading here and there. But it ends up showing us this. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing spiritual technology that's designed to fail. In that we hope that uh, we, will, we will, through meditation or through great contemplation, we hope that we will uh, somehow be able to um, get closer to God And meditation shows us that you can't get any closer to God than you already are. You can't get any closer to the infinite than you already are. You are already eternal. Your body's not. Your thoughts aren't. Your emotions aren't. All that stuff's temporary. But as you begin occupying and coming from this place of stillness that's prior to all things, you're actually sourcing yourself from the infinite but doing it in a really conscious way. It's quite beautiful. So how does how does this like uh, unfold? Um, I think what what one notices is that typically um, we begin to uh, see that meditation is not just a means to enlightenment. It's not the way we get to enlightenment. It's it's not just a means to an end, as Krishnamurti says. It's both a means and an end. That meditation actually becomes the way we consciously meet what is. Uh, We first uncover the stillness. We recognize it. And then something really beautiful happens. The stillness begins to recognize itself through us. It meets itself through us. And then there's a certain divine spontaneity that we meet the world with. But it can't happen. That divine spontaneity, so to speak, can't happen. Unless we learn not to flinch at life, unless we learn not to tense up. Yun Men, the uh, great Chinese master, says In walking, just walk, in sitting, just sit. Above all else, don't wobble. In other words, can you be right there in the heat? Have you purified enough butter? (laughs) Can you turn the heat up a little bit more and even in, in higher temperatures, can you still have integrity? Because this is the great test. We're always given great opportunities for this. Anyway, so peace is born out of this process. So is wisdom, so is compassion, so is opening to grace. And there's a felt sense of it. There will be some moment most likely in your meditation practice, assuming you take it seriously enough and you're diligent enough and so forth, where stuff starts happening. And it can be a little freaky. Um, uh, It can also be a way, and I've seen this happen too, where people start really tripping out on states of consciousness that they start uncovering. These are all very natural. They're very natural things to happen, but the work is not about achieving states. It's about letting those states inform traits. That again? Yeah, it's not about states. This work meditation is not about achieving some type of, uh, you know, state of consciousness. You know, your, uh, your dharmakaya where your, your bliss body or whatever where you just literally, you, you're you complete because there's no you there, you know? Now, most people are gonna go, yeah, I want that, right? That's pretty natural. It's a great goal to shoot for, but the thing that wants that, uh, while it's important that that, that uh, begins to, that, that type of um, uh, fire begins to burn, so to speak, that thing that wants it ultimately has to be jettisoned in order for that to unfold. Just sit still for a long time. It'll it'll show up, play with it. But the, the point I'm trying to make here is this. As those states begin to kind of unpack themselves in our experience, it's so often that we can confuse that with awakening. And it's not. You know, bliss does not mean you're enlightened enlightenment is essentially the systematic disidentification with your thoughts and your feelings and time where you're free of all that consciously and then you participate from that place of freedom you feel absolutely totally compelled to share it that's kind of what awakening is so um Meditation is a physical action of accepting the infinite that spontaneously opens us to what is beyond any boundary, any idea, any emotion, past or future. It is precisely beyond. Stillness is that place that is beyond even the concept of place. And words get in the way here. But there's a solution, uh, and that is to practice. Practice both formally and informally. Meditate every day. Give yourself one day off per week, but meditate every day. Assuming this is something you want. Meditate every day. Uh, make a commitment. Make a vow. You don't have to do it publicly if you don't feel like it. Actually, if you do do it publicly, people are gonna probably think you're freaky. Uh, but but it's, it's, really, it's really powerful. Making a commitment and then sticking to it. Um, Especially when you don't want to get on the cushion. That's when you should get on the cushion. The very thing in you that does not want to meditate is the very thing that will do everything it can to prevent any type of opening to grace. It's ego saying, "Mm mm-mm. I'd rather watch the news hour, or I'd rather, you know, go play with the kids, or I would rather write a letter to a friend, or whatever. That negotiation right there is an egoic dance. And it doesn't mean you have to go to war with it. It means that you just pat it on the head, kiss it, and say, you're gonna be just fine. I'm gonna go meditate. There's also a way of doing this informally. And by informal, informal meditation. cool thing about informal meditation is that during the day, at any point in time during the day, you can check in. Check in with your internal experience. Check in with what's really going on within. Observe it. Observe what's happening right now. Ask yourself the question, how am I feeling right now? And then let an answer arise out of stillness. And don't try to do anything to it. Just meet the answer. And the cool thing is um, that answer, or that, that question cannot be answered unless you're consciously meeting the experience with the witness, witnessing awareness that stillness offers us. Ask yourselves right now, silently, how am I feeling right now in this experience? How's my body feeling? You cannot answer that question without plugging in to something huge. Stillness affords that relationship. It allows for that relationship to grow. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Any questions? Yes. Is more sitting better? It could, to, it like a question, but... Sit once a day. Figure out the time. And let that time grow. Maybe another way is yeah, okay. So is, is there too much is there a point? yeah when it becomes an addiction so this is why an appointed time is really kind of cool it takes it takes some discipline i mean this is why if you think about like how these these communities like the uh the zen monasteries of the 12th and 13th century were these enlightenment factories <laughs> where they could just get these people into these into these spaces by taking away everything from that, they, that could possibly distract them. We will take care of the time. We will take care of the food. We will take. Care, but every single, all you have to do is when you hear the, you know, the the sound of the wood hitting the wood, called the han, when that thing hits, get into the zendo. And so that allowed then for the tendency, the habitual, one of the great habitual tendencies for human beings, is to manage their own time. Right. Well, when that's taken from you and you have to be there at a certain time, suddenly ego is literally put on its heels, totally put on its heels. And so that's one recommendation I would I would give you. So do it at the same time every day if you can, okay? And it makes little or no sense for you to decide, well, you know what, I'm going to do this four times a day. Because what's really important is that the half hour that you do in the morning and or the half hour that you that you do in the evening or whatever that they end up being if you will like bookends that inspire your day that allow you to study your day Um, if you want more i suggest you you get yourself to a um a retreat center there are very few of you in this room that are not ready for a week-long meditation retreat. I highly recommend it. I highly recommend it. It's scary, yeah. Get over it, you can, you'll, you'll be great, you know? There'll be some really awful moments. You've had those before, right? Um, I kind of feel like I haven't answered your question as I look at your face, but maybe I have. Yeah. Okay, what do you think, more, less? Do you need more meditation? I'm not sure. That's why. Yeah. Then here's what I would try and I'm, because I know you, I would, I would make sure your morning happens and I would try doing something in the evening. Uh, And I will say from personal experience that wine inhibits really good evening meditation. (laughs) You can meditate on tipsiness, which can be fun, but uh, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, meeting it with utter and complete sobriety is I think a really really it, it just it pushes gooses everything you know so just give that a shot see what it feels like try it. And, and give yourself an out so like I'm going to do this for a week see how it feels and evaluate but then do it for that week yeah <laughs> yeah Mm-hmm. and the effort, and the pain, and the suffering to get there, why is it that there's not more people that try meditation? And also, to throw in the same question, someone like Eckhart Tolle, who just all of a sudden awakened without a tremendous amount of uh, the 10,000 hours of mm-hmm. meditation. Uh, help me with uh okay. with his situation weaving that into the oh it doesn't oh okay so th- then let me first I'll start with um uh, I don't I don't I'm not super familiar with Eckhart Tolle's uh situation other than what I remember reading was that he was in a a place of immense despair pain. and pain emotional like near near suicidal pain and had um, kind of this major earth-shattering breakthrough that not only took him out of his, uh, his position while he was at was it Cambridge or Oxford or something like that, but then it, it put him literally on the benches of Hyde Park. And, and um, then it was only later that he kind of came back into the world when he realized that what he had to say was valuable to other people. It's a really kind of a cool story. Um, uh, in Buddhism we call them Pratyeka Buddhas Uh, and they're rare but they invariably happen out of uh, a space of such intensity that everything stops that stillness begins to inspire an entirely different perspective on everything which is exactly what he kind of articulates and Yeah, interesting, interesting. Uh, and then back to your question, your your first question was why would, you know, if people will go through this, you know, this deal is, uh, uh, to become a medical doctor and so forth, you know, all this pain and suffering, why, why would they not do, you know, become meditators? Generally speaking, being a physician pays much better than a professional meditator. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, That's right, and so which would make it much easier in many respects to be a physician, not only because you are uh, given status but you are working with something that you can, you have, you have concrete uh, uh, metrics that by which you can measure success, okay, did I get through, did I make it, did I, and the deal with meditation is, it's, it's, it's as much as it's as rigorous in many respects as you know, going through going through like the the super duper intense meditative schools process is like a graduate degree. And um, uh, as much as you can you can work with those things, what they they go for something that's entirely different. In that one's about waking up to your true nature, and the other one is about helping people okay and hopefully if done correctly both the medical profession and the enlightened people who are working on enlightenment can meet together and integrate those two things so that what we're looking at is the dynamism of the west the achievement orientation of the west can inspire the stillness traditions of the east and together what do we get Conscious participation and engaged activity in the world. Wouldn't it be cool if our doctors woke up? Or business leaders? Wouldn't it be cool if if our meditators actually could consciously and purposefully begin to inspire more than just small communities, you know? And you and I could have this conversation forever. I mean, it's 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 fairly interesting. I just think that there's some real obvious reasons not to go into uh, meditation. It's the scariest thing you'll ever love. <laughs> yeah. I saw another hand. I thought it was over. This, yes, sir. I this is meditation one hundred and one. <laughs> when I'm meditating and thoughts are flying. What is that? What is that entity that, or whatever, that's saying there's that thought? Not ignore it, but just let it pass. That's the the witness, Mark. That's the witness. That's the observer. That's the seer. That's the I prior to I. Follow that, because that's going to serve you immeasurably. That's where stillness develops a very quiet voice. Okay? Last long, <laughs> say again? I couldn't it hear you. I mean, it's not like, last well. Actually, I would say let, let, me, let me push you a little bit. It's, it's the only thing that's never not there. It's there right now. Your experience right now is being observed, right? Yes. Okay? It's being observed, it's being witnessed. All right? You're watching, you're feeling, you're sensing. You're hearing and the the awareness in you or the witness in you that can uh, kind of participate with all that without saying a thing or doing a thing, just being utterly, completely, and totally receptive is stillness in quote-unquote action or stillness in non-action, I should say. And so when we begin to uh, uncover that entity if you will, which is, it's false, but we'll call it an entity, that can go, aha, 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 without trying to do the other, which, the egoic thing, which is, aha, let's fix that. Aha, you suck, aha, I suck, aha, right? There's the thing that's prior to that is just, aha, ego's playing, right? We move ourselves, if you will, further back in the theater, as we start you know, watching this stage play. And eventually we actually leave the theater. And there's so much light out there. What does that mean, leave the theater? Well, in other words, the stage of mind begins to play itself out. And we know that it's playing itself out. And it becomes so totally uninteresting. It's like Plato's cave, you know. We see these shadows and we confuse them with reality. At some point in time we start seeing that, oh my God, I've been, I've been doing that? How silly and then we start getting a real clear sense of wait a minute i this this whole thing is so theatrical i'm in a theater i'm witnessing this stage play and that stage play wants me to think that it's real but i can see right through it's not real uh, oh my goodness and now ego that's running the stage play realizes it's been seen it's like an actor who has suddenly forgotten all of his lines. And you're just sitting there, huh. The stage place can become, in essence, uh, something that is utterly unimportant at a certain point. And that's when we leave the theater, or the theater, if you will, leaves us. We start actually becoming what's beyond the theater. And in that becoming, or a a dissolution into what is beyond the theater. We not only don't destroy the theater, we've always got it, in case we want to participate. It becomes optional, but we actually are inhabiting a much more spacious, expansive um, uh, place in the universe, because we are the universe. And so, our ability to participate, our ability, we can become helpful, we can become, you know, uh, uh, awake and meet the world and engage. But that talk is a few weeks away. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, finally. So does that mean that, then, that you can essentially neutralize the ego by perfecting the witness? Uh, no. Because the you can't perfect what's already perfect. Right? But the volume can go very low. The volume the volume of the ego can go low. But so can the witness. The witness can stop. You can, it's like Mark was saying, you know, when you're saying, ah, oh, God, emotion. And sometimes that volume goes away and you go fucking la la land, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And that's the ego taking off. Right? That's the ego actually getting in the way. Of, uh, or I, I guess I should say, it's um, a witness that hasn't been worked out very well, very much. It's out of shape. Meditation is what allows you to become a spiritual athlete. It's what allows that witness to, to strengthen. I hate using this metaphor, but it's, it, it's, it's what allows the witness to begin to become stronger, to become more of the constant As opposed to to the chatter. It's what actually is watching the chatter. And that always creates a little bit of space. Okay? And that space uh, is essentially what's being taught here. It's what stillness is. Stillness is space. Ego sounds like this kind of insidious, evil presence. Um, Yeah, egos always label themselves as insidious and evil. And they're not. They're divine manifestations of the infinite. They come from peace and stillness, just like everything else. The ego's entrance, It sounds of, like it's constantly sabotaging. Well, of, of course, but that doesn't mean it's not beautiful. Its job is to do that, right? Its job, the ego's job, is to destroy opportunities for awakening, even though it says, I want it, OK? So it is indeed a saboteur, like you're saying. The witness has no volume control. It's always as it is. It is always still. It is always available. It is always open. Ego can talk loud enough, okay, and we cannot meditate enough, either formally or informally, to have the... The, the potency of the witness kind of carry us through. Does that kind of make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. But don't, don't. it's really important that we not bash ego. Ego got us here. Ego got us into this room. Ego got us through every pinch we've ever been in. It also got us into every pinch we've ever been in. But, <laughs> right? But it's not, ego's not bad. That's just, That's just ego judging itself, thinking it's awake. (laughs) Witnessing that interplay from the seats in the theater allows us to create a little bit of distance, and like I said earlier, you can't help but smile. Thank you guys for coming. Appreciate it.